Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this season, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on every single goddamn page in a trio of adventure modules for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes RPG, starting with Adventure MT1, All This and World War II. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. All This and World War II was written by Ray Winninger and published in 1989 by TSR. Today we are discussing the cover of All This and World War II. Season 5 is here at last, and we are beginning a season that's going to look, for the first time ever, at three complete books. Three adventure modules for the old TSR Marvel Super Heroes role-playing game that together constitute what a fair-minded literary scholar would refer to as a meandering series of events, and what a comic book writer would call a breathtaking saga. It's, it's one continuous story, situation, sequence. I mean, multiple things that happen one after the other. Well, I, one after the other. Listen, it's three modules and I'm doing them all. I'm very excited to talk about these modules. They are new to me in the sense that I didn't have them when I was a kid. But they are for, as I mentioned, the TSR Marvel Super Heroes game. And that is one of those games that I, for real, read and reread until the cover fell off. I'm not going to do a big summary of the Marvel Super Heroes role-playing game, affectionately known as the Face Rip System, because of the game's key stats, fighting, agility, strength, endurance, reason, intuition, and psyche. Don't forget psyche. It is the one that will trip you up, as Doc is to the Seven Dwarves. Psyche is to Face Rip. The Face Rip Marvel Super Heroes system is pretty well beloved. There are relatively a lot of people talking about it on the internet, despite the fact that it's been out of print for a very long time. And if you want to get into the weeds about how it works and where it comes from and what people think about it, you're going to have no trouble finding other podcasts and resources about that. For now, if you don't know the system, don't worry about it. We'll get into the little quirks as appropriate as we go. The main things we're going to be talking about are, number one, just the inexhaustible supply of dumbness in Marvel Comics lore, especially earlier on. Like, comic books are marginally better thought out nowadays, but Marvel superhero comics, from the first, like, 20 or so years of their publication, God knows I love them, but I could probably do a never-ending Mega Dumbcast series about every page of every comic that Marvel published from 1961 to at least a decade later. We're talking about goofy shit. And as we know now, in the age of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Marvel's intellectual property is a fucking palace, a fucking Xanadu. So rich, so productive, so entertaining, so lucrative. I mean, not for the people who invented and wrote these characters, but for other people. But that palace is built on a foundation of at least 10 or 15 years of the absolute goofiest shit imaginable, which then proceeded to be complicated beyond all reason. So that's one thing we're going to be able to talk about. These modules give us an opportunity to talk about all kinds of little nooks and crannies in Marvel lore. But we're not talking about them in isolation. We're talking about all that shit in the context of role-playing. We're looking at those things with the noise in our ears of the last wheezing breath of late 80s adventure design. These three modules dredge up Marvel Comics material from an age unrecognizable in its goofy dumbness and employs it to build adventure modules from a similarly naive time in role-playing games. No big critique at the top, but it suffice it to say that the mainstream role-playing hobby coasted along for a lot of years before somebody thought, you know, a lot of these gameplay elements that worked for loose bands of grubby cutthroats exploring nonsensical underground structures don't work very well for things like superheroes or space travel 
or, you know, anything but grubby corridor simulation. So there's a lot of unspoken and unquestioned old school dungeon crawl stuff just kind of floating around in these modules, sitting very strangely with the already strange Marvel comic stuff. In fact, speaking of the strangeness of Marvel Comics and how we interpret it, let me get to this actual cover. But, sorry, I kind of spaced on the point of this podcast for a few minutes there. I won't let it happen again. This cover uh, depicts three World War II-era Marvel superheroes, Prince Namor the Submariner, Captain America, and presumably the Human Torch, although it could be Toro, his sidekick who is confusingly identical to him except for scale. Anyway, one of those two fiery ones, plus honorary World War II-era superhero, Sergeant Nick Fury, whom you may recognize from his later work as director and agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Supreme Headquarters of International Espionage, Law Enforcement Division, a job as complicated as it sounds, but who is at this time leading a less sophisticated outfit called the Howling Commandos, who pretty much just stick to being commandos with a side of howling. It was a simpler time for Nick Fury, and while he's not really a Golden Age character, like he wasn't really being published during the Second World War, as these other three were, he does seem at home with the rest of them, just engaging in a kind of dramatic-looking but disorganized charge against a collection of villains, who include Baron Blood, who is a vampire who wears kind of a purple bat costume. I guess that may strike you as on the nose, but the th I mean, you know how it is. You may be a vampire, but at public events or on film, that may not necessarily read as vampire. Sometimes you've got to turn it up, and apparently when you turn up the dial on Vampire, you get giant purple bat ears. Baron Blood is getting kind of awkwardly jumped on by Captain America, who is falling out of the sky, and I don't know why. I don't know why he got in the sky or why he left, but he did, and obviously he took Baron Blood by surprise too. Over on the other side of the page, we got Red Skull, easily identified by his Red Skull. He's holding a Luger, kind of shaking his fist over at Captain America, even though Captain America is attacking Brother Blood, and Nick Fury is right next to Red Skull with a gun. It's a stressful situation, and the only way Red Skull knows to cope with stress is to rail against the hated Captain America, a very prominent character flaw, second only to being the world's Naziest Nazi. Then across from Red Skull, there is what looks just like a generic German soldier who does not belong here. This motherfucker clearly walked into the wrong splash page, and based on his body language, he knows it. And then rounding out Team Evil, we have Baron Strucker, the evil Nazi aristocrat with a monocle, who is at the very bottom of the cover, clearly not interested in taking a superhero to the midsection like Baron Blood over there, not looking for a fight, and lucky him, he doesn't get one. He's not actually in this book. I don't know why he's on the cover. The art here, as throughout, is a little on the cartoony side, but it's not bad. It's competent illustration of these characters. This artist, Jeffrey Butler, just gets the characters right, portrays all these Marvel characters in a correct and competent way, which is what we're going to see all over these books. That's why it may stick out to the naive reader that Baron Blood depicted in a moment of utter undead perplexity as Captain America is about to just land right where he's standing like he didn't notice there was a vampire there. Uh, Baron Blood displays that perplexed look on a big old head. It's so big. It's partly because of the big purple ears, but it's not all their fault. I initially thought maybe here's a guy with a slightly big head who made the fashion mistake of accentuating one of his already prominent features with gigantic purple flaps, and that bad decision just makes him look like a bobblehead. But no, this is not the case. Baron Blood has a huge fucking head. It's part of his character. It's part of his design. Go look him up in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Master Edition. That's the one with like the front view, side view, and back view of all the superheroes and supervillains. So you can see how fucking ridiculous most superhero costumes look from behind. And also how almost every superhero has a real tight butt, but it's just rarely facing camera. If you go to that edition of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, you'll see it there, plain as day. Baron Blood 
It's got a big old head. And I've known this because I used to have Invaders comics where he appeared. The Invaders, as we'll discover in this book, is a superhero team of World War II era heroes. And Baron Blood was one of their villains. And so when I was a kid and I had this comic book, I just sort of absorbed that Baron Blood is some kind of vampire in a goofy purple outfit with a noticeably large head. And it's always rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. I'm going to say that Baron Blood's head is the dumbest thing on this page. And that may seem like a strange choice in this dumbness-rich environment, but I'll explain. No one on this page is innocent. I mean, there's nothing dumb for our purposes here about the regular Nazi, but he's a regular Nazi, so fuck that guy. But like all the superheroes and supervillains here show the eccentricities of the genre. Uh, the Human Torch, or maybe Toro. He's flying through the air, kind of veering off to the side, makes you wonder what's so goddamn important over off screen right that he's leaving a normal U.S. military sergeant to fight Red Skull, Baron Strucker, and a goddamn vampire. Apparently, Human Torch has something better to do. But notice that he's flying through the air. Why is he flying? Well, it's because heat rises, you see. Sometimes when they talk about this, they talk about uh, like thermal updrafts or something of that nature. But basically what it boils down to is when a human being gets hot enough, fiery enough, then they can fly. They'll just fly into the air. But only if you have fire powers and can control the fire. Otherwise, I guess you would just keep going up, up, up and leave the earth. I don't know. How many spontaneous combustions do we never find out about because someone burst into flames and then just shot like a fucking bottle rocket into space? But it's, it's patently ridiculous, right? From time to time, we encounter things that are on fire, and they very rarely start soaring in the air. It's dumb. Captain America, putting aside the various improbabilities of his origin, his superpowers, look at his fucking head. Tiny wings. Why? Are they supposed to be eagle wings? Eagles don't have tiny little wings like that. We wouldn't use them to symbolize shit if they did. Can you imagine? Like the seal of the United States featuring an eagle with a noble tearing beak and these tiny fucking worthless wings on Captain America's head? If eagles looked like that, early Americans wouldn't have given a shit about them. Or they would have killed them all for no reason. One of the two. But they certainly wouldn't have adopted them as a national symbol. Those are not eagle wings. In fact, I've only ever seen wings like that in two contexts. Captain America's head and, to shift our attention to Namor, the Submariner's ankles. Submariner has tiny wings on his ankles. Now, on the pro side, unlike Captain America, he was born with those wings there. There's nothing he could do about it. I don't blame him for this. He was born a mutant, and his mutant power is that he has tiny wings on his ankles. Should he have had them removed? Should the doctor who delivered him have surgically interfered with his natural anatomy simply because his feet are dumb looking? No. All feet are dumb looking in their own way. Think about it. The little toe? Fuck me. What a look. What a look we all have. What the fuck? Given the micro-winged eagle a run for its money in the goofy looks department is the human foot. So no fault there on an in-universe level. However, these tiny wings allow Namor to fly. Once again, ridiculous, up and down, implausible, goofy looking. Uh, Sergeant Fury here, smoking a cigar as he charges into combat. Life or death combat with a cigar in your mouth, just a thing we accept in comic books. Gruff men like to fight for their lives while smoking. Red Skull, he's got an extremely expressive look of angry disdain on his face for somebody whose entire face is covered in 1940s era rubber mask technology. And he's wearing an ascot into strenuous combat, which is neither comfortable nor safe. Wearing an ascot into battle is basically deciding, I don't care if I die just as long as they know I was insufferable. But at least he didn't go into combat in a fucking monocle like Baron Strucker. All of these things are ridiculous. All of these things, it's, it's comic books. But at least we address it. 
Nick Fury's cigar habit, over the top, but it's a trademark of his that people talk about. That guy is so tough. That guy is such an old-fashioned, grizzled man's man that no matter how dire the crisis, he divides his attention to also enjoy a nice stogie at the same time. Captain America. People call him a winghead sometimes. They notice there's wings on his head. Namor. His flight is a mutant power, you understand. That's a retcon, so we don't think he's simply flying by means of tiny wings on his lower body. That would be ridiculous. He's flying with tiny mutant wings on his lower body. Thermal updrafts for Human Torch. I I could go on and on. The point is, we talk about these things. We know it's dumb. The comics know it's dumb. Everybody knows it's dumb. And there is no joy in haranguing comic books for being comic books. But here's my thing. My collection of Invaders and other World War II era comics is by no means complete. But I never once saw anybody mention how fucking huge Baron Blood's head is. And why? It's such a goofy look, and so is his costume. But his costume is a bat costume, and vampires are associated with bats. It's a bad fashion choice, but the logic is sound. Vampires don't have big heads. He's also an English aristocrat. English aristocrats also don't have big heads. English listeners can correct me. Maybe they just don't look this big on television. I don't know. But that's not how it is on Downton Abbey, which I understand to be basically the way you people live, right? It doesn't... I don't understand it. I know that Nazis did experiments on Baron Blood, but none of them are head-related. Baron Blood is just drawn like a weird cartoon character, like a Peanuts character almost. This is just a, a very cartoony design in an otherwise more realistic world. You can see the author here had no choice. We see these characters side by side all the time. Captain America looks like a person. Namor looks like a person, at least from the calves up. Human Torch looks like person-shaped fire. And Baron Blood has the anatomical proportions of a comical villain from a children's book. And this is not mentioned or explained. I feel like I'm being gaslighted by comic books with Baron Blood in them. I keep wanting for real. I'm not, I'm not playing this up. I've felt this feeling in the past. I read these comic books and I'm so frustrated. I'm like, aren't you going to talk about that guy's head? Especially like Marvel comics have a habit of really coddling the new reader. Like every time a character appears, especially like in older comics, we got to explain again who they are, what they can do. And never a peep about this guy's huge fucking melon. So the dumbest thing on this page is Baron Blood's big dumb vampire head. There are a lot of dumb things on this page, but Baron Blood's head is the one that they're trying to slip past me, and I don't appreciate it. Anyway, join me tomorrow as we get our first taste of the dichotomy that is the Marvel Superheroes RPG, as we turn from a goofy purple vampire with a giant head for no reason to a gray flowchart on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact the show however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Podbean, Gmail, Instagram, etc., etc. This episode's theme music is Robinson's Grand Entry March, performed by the United States Air Force Concert Band. Thanks for listening.